Well, I invite you once again to turn with me to Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter 9. This morning we'll be finishing up part 2 of what we began last week, considering the title, God Incarnate. God Incarnate. Last week we considered verses 1 through 5, and I read the entirety of the passage, but this morning for emphasis, I'm just going to read verses 6 and 7, and that's where we're going to spend most all of our time. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. These are the words of God. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. There is perhaps no one with whom I agree more on the subject of Christmas than the Prince of Preachers himself, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I say that because if you read the Christmas sermons that Spurgeon preached and you read his thoughts on Christmas, you can sense very clearly the tension that Spurgeon had in his own mind. Let me share two quotes with you from Spurgeon. Spurgeon says this, at the beginning uh, of a Christmas service that he preached on December 24th in 1876. Spurgeon says, quote, We owe no allegiance to the ecclesiastical powers which have made a decree on this matter. For we belong to an old-fashioned church which does not dare to make laws but is content to obey them. He's referring there to the Church of England, which was the state church at the time, Uh, establishing by law the ecclesiastical calendar and mandating Christmas observance. Spurgeon says, we belong to an old-fashioned church. We know Spurgeon was a Baptist. Uh, And he said, we don't believe that the the church has any right to make laws. And we say, amen. He said, but as citizens of England, we're content to obey those laws. And here's what he means by that. He says, at the same time, the day is no worse than another, If you choose to observe it and observe it unto the Lord, I doubt not that he will accept your devotion. While if you do not observe it, but unto the Lord observe it not, for fear of encouraging superstition and will worship, I doubt not, but what you shall be as accepted in the non-observance as you could have been in the observance of it. What is Spurgeon saying? He's saying, if you observe the day unto the Lord and you worship and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, God will accept your worship. And if you don't observe the day, and to the Lord you don't observe it, for conscience sake, the Lord will accept your non-observance. This is the tension that Spurgeon has, but listen to this quote that that Spurgeon said in December of 1855 when he preached a sermon entitled The Incarnation and Birth of Christ from Micah 5.2. You really see the tension here in this quote. Notice what Spurgeon says. He says, This is the season of the year when whether we wish it or not, We are compelled to think of the birth of Christ. I hold it to be one of the greatest absurdities under heaven to think that there is any religion in keeping Christmas Day. 
There are no probabilities whatsoever that our Savior Jesus Christ was born on that day and the observance of it is purely of popish origin. Doubtless those who are Catholics have a right to hallow it, but I do not see how consistent Protestants can account it in the least sacred. And we say, man, Spurgeon, you really are a Scrooge. But then he goes on and he says this, however, I wish that there were ten or a dozen Christmas days in the year. For there is work enough in the world, and a little more rest would not hurt laboring people. Christmas Day is really a boon to us, particularly as it enables us to assemble round the family hearth, meet our friends once more. Still, although we do not fall exactly in the track of other people, I see no harm in thinking of the incarnation and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the tension there that Spurgeon faced? And as I shared last week, I face some of that tension myself. And I know some of you do as well. And I think Spurgeon just takes such a wonderful position. Such a wonderful position. Did he celebrate Christmas? Well, not exactly. Uh, But was Spurgeon a Grinch who hated it? Far from it. Because he saw the blessings of gathering with family. uh, And he saw the truth of the incarnation. And so I agree with these quotes I agree that though there is no command in Scripture to honor December 25th, uh, there could never be, there certainly is not, anything wrong about proclaiming the glorious doctrine of the Incarnation, whether you do that on December 25th or July 25th. It's fundamental to what we believe as Christians, that God the Father, in the fullness of time, sent His Son into the world to be born of the Virgin Mary, to grow into a man, to live a sinless life, to die on a cross for our sins that we might be saved from the wrath of God. Amen. Well, last week we considered verses 1 through 5, which give us the context for the well-known portion of Scripture that comes in verses 6 through 7. Most preachers, when they deal with the incarnation from Isaiah 9, they make a beeline to verses 6 through 7. That's really where the meat of the matter is on the incarnation. But there's so much glorious truth in verses 1 through 5 that give us the context in which the incarnation comes to us. You'll remember that Isaiah stated the effects before the cause. And I gave you a a four-point outline. And last week we only got through the first point, which was the consequences of the Son. The consequences of the Son. When the Lord Jesus Christ entered into the world there was a cataclysmic effect that took place in the world and upon the world for the Son of God having come into the world. And so we looked at the consequences of the Son. There will be a a glorious illumination, a glorious increase, and a glorious liberty. But now in verse 6, the prophet Isaiah dives deeper into the ultimate cause of all of these things. Who is the source of this bright light that shines into the world? Who builds and expands the kingdom of God? Who secures the spiritual and eternal liberty for all of God's people? And so we pick up in verse 6 with the second point of our outline. I want you to see the coming of the Son. The coming of the Son. Notice he begins verse 6 this way. For... Unto us. This little phrase denotes both causality and intent. 
the word for ties in verse 6 with everything the prophet has said thus far. Anytime you see a wherefore or a therefore or a for in your Bible, you need to look at the preceding passage and see what it's there for. There's so much glory contained in the prepositional phrases of the Bible. Many of the great doctrines of the faith rest upon prepositional phrases. And this is one of them. For unto us, unto us, who is the us? Who is the us that that this child is, is born to and this son is given to? Well, if you look at verses 1 through 5, you see that the us are the people who walked in darkness, the people who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, the people who had a yoke of bondage and oppression upon them. The unto us, brothers and sisters, are you. Amen. It describes each and every one of us in our fallen state as sinners before a holy God. And it was unto us that Christ was sent. Thank God that the Bible doesn't say that Christ was given for the righteous. Or that Christ was given for good people. Or that Christ was given for those who are doing their best and trying really hard to live a good life. Because if it had said that Christ was given for them, I wouldn't have qualified. And you wouldn't have qualified. But unto us. Unto us who had no hope. Unto us who had no ability to save ourselves. Unto us who had no desire for the things of God. Unto us was Christ given. The coming of the Son is described here in two ways that splendidly uphold the fullness of His humanity and His deity. I want you to track with me as we we consider the theology here in the giving of the Son. Notice He says, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a child is born. This speaks to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ became man. He was born of a virgin. He was the offspring of of the Holy Ghost. And He became like us in all points, yet without sin. Here we see His humiliation and His condescension. The mighty God became a child. The Ancient of Days became an infant. The Everlasting Father became a boy. This was so because our redemption necessitated that Christ take our nature upon Him and be born under the law and live the perfectly righteous life before God that you and I could never live. In order to do that, He had to become a man. In the incarnation, Jesus becomes all that we could ever need. You do not need an angel to wing down from heaven and encourage you to live the Christian life. You do not need some supernatural effusion to jolt you into spirituality. What you need is a man. You need a man who is just like you in his manhood, who will live in your behalf the life that you could never live. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith is so helpful at this point. In chapter 8 on Christ the Mediator, part of paragraph 2 says this, 
He, that is Jesus, He did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon Him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that, listen, two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, Yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. And to that we say, hallelujah. Too many in our day have a distorted view of Christ's humanity. As they wrestle through the perfection with which Jesus lived his earthly life, perhaps you have thought this way. You say, well, yes, I know that he's a man. And I know that he lived righteously, and I know he kept the law, but he's God. He's God. So, of course he lived a perfect life. And while that statement means well, what it really does is it subvertly takes away from the full humanity of Jesus Christ. Amen. What you must understand is that, as the confession states, there was no conversion composition or confusion between the divine and human natures of Christ. He was fully and truly and really a man in every way. Let me say it to you this way. He is a man, not Superman. Amen. When he got cut, he bled. Red blood. When he went a little while without food, he got hungry. When he came into contact... Uh, with somebody that had the sniffles, he caught the cold. When he went to the wilderness and was tempted of Satan, he was really tempted. Those weren't hypothetical temptations, brothers and sisters. He didn't just do that for show. He was tempted in all points, like as we were, yet without sin. And when you understand that he underwent those trials and temptations. When he suffered on the cross, he did it in a man's body. And when you understand that, brothers and sisters, when you understand that, yes, he was God, he is God, but he suffered as a man, because God cannot suffer. And he was tempted as a man, because God cannot be tempted. When you understand that, it brings a depth and a reality to the agonies of Christ. Just caused my heart to be smitten. This man, this man did this for you and for me. And so, the application to our lives is that when we look at our own disobedience and our own failures, and we look at the Lord Jesus, who is our standard, we cannot say, well, of course he lived that way because he's God. But God understands that I sin because I'm not God. Don't do that. You don't have that excuse. Jesus had the fullness of the Spirit without measure. I understand. You daily need to be filled with the Spirit. You need to be searching and seeking for the Spirit of God, but you have the Spirit of God. And as a Christian, you do not have to sin. 
When you are tempted, you do not have to succumb to these temptations. Well, I'm just a man. Well, I'm just a sinner. Ah, yes, but if you are redeemed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been given a new nature that is, our brother mentioned this morning in the catechism time, that can say no to sin and can say no to temptation. Will you ever be sinlessly perfect? Not in this life, brothers and sisters. When temptation comes, you can look to the God-man who in his humanity resisted temptation and did not succumb. No man has ever lived as this man lived. No man has ever earned what this man earned and no man is to be worshipped as this man is to be worshipped. The second person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and Holy Spirit, was born a child and became, notice I'm emphasizing the word became, a man. I'll tell you why I'm emphasizing that word in a minute. Isaiah goes on and he says, says, Unto us, child is born. But then he says, Unto us, a son is given. Notice that the child is born, but the son is given. This undergirds the full deity and eternality of Jesus Christ. Here's why I'm emphasizing the word become. Because he became a child. There was a point in time in which the Lord Jesus was not a child and was not a man. He became those things in the incarnation. And as the confession says, he inseparably became those things, meaning that he became a man and he forever remained a man, and today he is a man sitting at the right hand of the Father. We affirm that. But there was never a time when he became the Son. Again, the confession is so helpful in chapter 2. In paragraph 3, it affirms that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. From that language, you might read in a theology somewhere, you might hear someone talk about the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. He is eternally begotten of the Father. The doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son is essential for a proper understanding of the Trinity. And the doctrine simply teaches that the Lord Jesus Christ did not become the Son of God, but that He is eternally the Son of God. Christ is not the Son of God because He is lesser than the Father. He is the Son of God because that is how the second person of the Godhead eternally relates to the Father, who is the first person of the Godhead. The doctrine of eternal generation teaches us that there is order in the Godhead, but no suborder. You might be sitting there thinking, what kind of relevance does this have? Well, sadly, it has a lot because there are several in our day, even in Reformed circles, who are advocating eternal functional subordination or eternal relations of authority and submission where they are actually teaching that Jesus Christ is... uh, ontologically subordinate to God the Father and that God has raised him to sit second place in the cosmos. But brothers and sisters, we must affirm with Nicaea and with Athanasius and with Westminster and with the London Baptist Confession that the Lord Jesus Christ is eternally begotten of the Father, co-equal and co-eternal. And I'll say, if you want some more information on that or some resources, please talk with me 
um, later, and I'll be happy to go more in depth on that doctrine. But you must see that the Father and the Son, they share the same divine essence. They share the same divine attributes, yet they are two distinct persons in one God. Part of our Trinitarian errors come from when we try to explain the Trinity more than we try to worship the Trinity. Right. <laughs> in the fullness of time, the second person of the Trinity assumed a human nature, but not at the expense of his divine nature. True humanity and true deity coexisting in one person without any mixture whatsoever. This is the hypostatic union of the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And this is why we worship Him not only as God, not only as man, but as the God-man. The God-man. You say, why are you dropping all of this theology on us this morning? And I admit, this is far more technical than we typically go. But I think when you deal with something such as the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation, you owe it to the, to the text of Scripture to go a little deeper on some of these things. And I'm dropping this theology on you because I want you to see that when the Bible says, unto us a son is given, it is not someone outside of God that God has chosen to raise up as the Savior. You needed a man. To live in your behalf. To live righteously. To be your substitute. To die for your sins. You needed a man. But not just any man. God did not just raise up any man to live and be your Savior. When the Bible says that God gave us a son, unto us a son is given. When God gave us a son, He gave us Himself. That's what I want you to see. That the incarnation... The giving of the Son was God giving Himself to you through a manger, through the Virgin Mary. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. What a glorious truth, brothers and sisters. That man named Jesus from Nazareth who walked the earth 2,000 years ago and who fulfilled the law of God in your place and who went to the cross to die for your sins, that man was the eternal, almighty, thrice holy God of heaven and earth. Your Lord became a child. Your God became a man. Your Creator became your Savior. This is why we praise God for the incarnation of the Son. Because apart from it, we would have no hope of ever being saved. Of ever knowing God. Because we could not go to Him. He came to us. He came to us. And He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself. Is there anything more humbling than a baby who relies upon his parents to do literally everything for him? humbled himself and he came to us that we might one day be able to go to him this is the coming of the son but thirdly I want you to see the claims of the son the claims of the son notice verse 6 the government shall be upon his shoulders now what's all this talk about government rule well if you remember from last week Verse 5 ends with a declaration of liberty. 
the sinful bondage that governed you in your lost condition has been broken. The chains of oppression and depravity have been shattered. The question now is, upon whom does this government fall? You've been liberated from your ruler uh, that ruled over you when you were lost. Well, who rules you now? That's the question. And verse 6 is the answer. The government shall be upon his shoulder. God did not liberate you from sin and Satan so that you could live autonomously unto yourself. He saved you so that you could come under the government of the child born and the son given, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian, you must see that the government of your life is on the shoulders of Jesus. And now, in verse 6, Isaiah gives us four names, four titles that describe what kind of ruler he is. As Christians... We confess that Christ is sovereign over our lives. That He is in control. But that could be a very good thing or a very bad thing depending on what kind of sovereignty He possesses. So we must ask, what kind of governor is the Lord Jesus Christ? If He is a harsh and cruel and malevolent ruler... His sovereignty would be a very fearful truth. So let us look at these four names that define His sovereignty in four distinct ways. Number one, I want you to see that the Lord Jesus Christ possesses a sovereign wisdom. A sovereign wisdom. Notice the first name. It says, His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. The King James and the New King James put a comma in between these two words. We know that the Hebrew never had a comma, and it seems to me that uh, it would be best to treat these, these two words as one name, the Wonderful Counselor. This speaks of the omniscience of the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows all things. He knows all truth. He knows the way of salvation. He knows what is best for your life. Uh, before He ever became your counselor... He was already intimately acquainted with the counsels of God from all eternity. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He is our eternally wise, sovereign, wonderful counselor. Yet at the same time, He has no need to receive counsel from anyone else. Romans 11 verse 34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? No problem is ever too small for Him to listen. No grief is ever too weak for Him to hear. He is ever ready to walk by your side and to give you counsel as you live the Christian life. You might be asking two questions at this point. Number one, How do you share your needs with this wonderful counselor? How do you go to him and make known the needs of your heart and the needs of your soul so that he can counsel you? And secondly, how do you receive his counsel? Let me answer these two questions for you with the scriptures. 
First Peter 5, 7 tells us, Cast your cares upon Him, for He cares for you. Go to your wonderful counselor in prayer, and there make your requests known to God. You don't have to schedule an appointment with His office. You don't have to pay an appointment fee. He is there. He is ready and waiting to hear from you. He is far more ready to hear from you than you are ready to pray to Him. I can assure you that. At all times, every day, no matter what comes to pass in your life, you can go to your wonderful counselor with all of the needs of your heart, all the troubles of your soul, and you can share them to Him. And you will not have to bear your burden alone, for He will hear and He will listen. And our wonderful counselor has given us a book And he's given us his Holy Spirit that will guide us into all of his answers. Ephesians 5, verses 17 through 18 says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That means when you're filled with the Spirit, you understand the counsel of God. You understand what the will of the Lord is. This isn't his decretive will, it's his prescriptive will, it's... God's will for your life, what He would have you to do. The companion passage in Colossians 3, in verse 16, states it this way, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. How do I receive the sovereign wisdom from my wonderful counselor? You let His word dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To receive the blessings of your wonderful counselor. You go to him in prayer. You trust the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit. To reveal his counsel to you in his word. Secondly, with our ruler, our governor, we see sovereign strength. His name shall be called the mighty God. The Lord Jesus Christ is not only God, he is the mighty God. This speaks to his omnipotence. All power on heaven and earth is his. All dominion belongs to him. He rules with an unrivaled and unbridled sovereignty. Not only does he have the wisdom to provide wonderful counsel, he has the strength to perform all that he ordains. He is mighty to save, mighty to remove our sins, Mighty to redeem us from the wrath of God. Mighty to secure us with Him forever. No man can pluck us out of His hand because we are secured in the grasps of the mighty God. False religions of this world bow down to deaf, dumb idols that that can't move, that can't speak, that can't do anything. If your God has to be picked up and carried from place to place, He's not much of a God. But we bow before the mighty God who has all power and who sits in the heavens and with His power does whatsoever He pleases to do. Amen. He is mighty to rule His kingdom. He is mighty to defeat His enemies. He is mighty to judge sinners. He rules with unrivaled perfection. And on the last day, there will be no one standing to oppose Jesus Christ 
the mighty God. Thirdly, we see in the Lord Jesus sovereign care. Sovereign care. His name shall be called the Everlasting Father. Now what are we to make of the Son of God being named the Everlasting Father? We just talked about how we don't conflate the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity. So this isn't teaching anything of the such. But yet there are two instances, there are two senses in which Christ becomes our everlasting Father. Number one, Christ is the Father of time and eternity. He literally is the Father of all things everlasting. Uh, Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17 say, For by Him all things were created, that are in heaven, and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And listen, He is before all things. Before there was a such thing as time, there was the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, when Jesus died for sinners, there is a sense in which he becomes a father figure to them in that he leads them to God the Father. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 says that he shall see his seed. It refers to those sinners saved by the death of Jesus Christ as his offspring. In John 14, I believe it is, Jesus tells his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. So no, Christ is not God the Father, but he does care for his people as a father cares for his own children. We have sovereign care in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one will ever care for you like Jesus. No one will ever understand you like he does. A father has a a really intimate relationship with his children. He understands his children better than anyone, except maybe their mother. No one loves them the way he loves them. No one would lay down his life for them the way he would lay down his life for them. And in the same way, our Lord Jesus Christ fathers us, spiritually fathers us in the faith, and nourishes us and grows us and develops us and gives us a relationship with God the Father. We see sovereign care. And fourthly, in these names, we see a sovereign peace. His name shall be called the Prince of Peace. Remember, we mentioned that the truth of Christ's sovereignty was either very blissful or very terrifying depending on the character of his rule. Therefore, this is perhaps the most encouraging name in this verse. Earthly tyrants are known for their warfare. Sin has created a world in which hostility abounds. You turn on the news and you see of a mass shooting here, and you see of a bomb strike there, and you see of death here. The Christian can take heart in knowing that his God, his King, is the Prince of Peace. What peace the Lord Jesus Christ brings about between you and God and between you and fellow believers. 
And there's even a sense in which he brings about peace between you and unbelievers who don't even desire peace. But yet you're able to have peace in your own heart. Ephesians 2 and verse 14 tells us that he himself is our peace. Christ is our peace. What was born 2,000 years ago, there in Bethlehem, was the peace of the world. And we are most like him when we exhibit this peace in our lives. One of the marks of a Christian is that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of tension, in the midst of events that would cause most to pull their hair follicles out of their scalp, there is a peace that so characterizes their life because they trust in the sovereign Prince of Peace who rules over all things and rules over all things well. When we are always fighting with one another, when we always have tension in our relationships, we're not preaching that we know the Prince of Peace. But when tensions do arise, and by God's grace, our desire is to find the quickest way to secure peace, then we're following after our Lord. And if you're outside of Christ today, I pray that you see your need for peace. You are at war with God. And God is at war with you. And only the Prince of Peace can put an end to this warfare. Those who have objective peace with God then enter into subjective peace of God. Philippians 4, 6 says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The psalmist tells us that we are to seek peace and pursue it. Is that the way you live your life, dear Christian? If others were to uh, take a survey about your character, would they describe you as someone who's peaceful or someone who's contentious? Uh, Sometimes Christians, uh, when they start talking about what should bring peace, become more divisive than ever. Uh, Just go on some Facebook theology group and you'll see Christians biting and devouring one another, debating about the Prince of Peace. Oh, what a rebuke. No, may we stick to our convictions as firmly and as tenaciously as we know how to do before God. <laughs> but may we strive to be peaceful. Strive to be peaceful one with another. My prayer for this assembly is that God would give us peace. And, and I thank God because we have it. We have unity right now, and I'm very thankful for that. But we don't need to take it for granted or presume upon it. Oh God, preserve our peace. Preserve our peace. And when you don't have peace, it should cause you to wonder. If, if you're living your life and you're just constantly troubled and restless and you're always anxious and you're always stressed and you're always overwhelmed, then I ask you, how is your relationship with the Lord? God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, of a peaceful mind. Could it be that the stress and the anxiety that you think are being caused by external factors, could it really be 
that the root of that problem is your relationship with the Lord? And perhaps if your relationship with the Lord was a little bit closer, if you knew a little bit more about Him and the way that He's revealed Himself in His Word, could it be that maybe those things that bring you so much stress and anxiety, could it be that maybe they wouldn't get so far under your skin? If you grew deeper in the knowledge and reality of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, this world is full of woes, but if you can pillow your head at night and point your toes toward heaven and know that you have peace with God because you're saved by the Prince of Peace, then all of life's troubles seem so small compared to the overwhelming peace that God gives to His children. I believe in times of great trial, God is pleased to give us a special outpouring of this peace. May He give that to you as you go through trials of this life, heartaches that come your way. May God, may our God grant you peace. These are the magnificent and sovereign claims of the Son of God. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and He's the Prince of Peace. But fourthly and lastly, in verse 7, I want you to see the crowning of the Son. We've seen the consequences of the Son, the coming of the Son, the claims of the Son, but Verse 7, I want you to see the crowning of the Son. Notice, of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Here we see yet another way in which our divine King is so much great, greater than all earthly rulers. The kings of this world live and reign and die. But our King has a kingdom that shall never see an end to its increase. There are no term limits on his kingship. He will never be impeached. You cannot vote him out because you did not vote him in. He has and he will sit upon the throne for all eternity. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it. The the prophet is echoing back to the Davidic covenant when God promised David that he would establish a perpetual kingdom from his lineage. 2 Chronicles 7 and verses 11 through 12 say, I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever promised to David. Well, you look in Jerusalem right now and we don't see one of David's sons sitting upon any earthly throne, do we? No, we don't. (laughs) Does that mean that this covenant has not been fulfilled? Not at all, brothers and sisters. Christ has been raised up from the seed of David and he is reigning upon David's throne as we speak. He does that with judgment and with justice. These two things, judgment and justice, characterize His kingdom. There is no corruption. There is no fraud. There is no deceit. There is no bribery. There is no unrighteousness in this kingdom. This kingdom is governed with total equity. From henceforth, even forever. This is the span of this kingdom. Henceforth, the time in which Isaiah is speaking about, the coming of Christ even forever. This is an eternal kingdom. And then Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. 
Lastly, we see that this kingdom is safeguarded by the zeal of the Lord. This kingdom is protected and defended by his own jealousy for his own glory. That's what the zeal of the Lord is. The Lord your God is a jealous God. And this kingdom is ensured by the sovereign God of heaven and earth. It will come to pass. I've told you a lot about this kingdom, but I, I haven't really put my finger on exactly what this kingdom is. And, you know, there's a lot of debate over that. Uh, is this referring to the mediatorial kingdom of Christ that is present right now? Is this referring to the eschatological kingdom of Christ that will be inaugurated at His second coming? Is this referring to the general dominion that Christ has over all mankind and the created world? Well, my answer to those questions is yes. Yes. Uh, This prophecy isn't an either-or. It's a both-and. This prophecy points to all facets of Christ's kingdom. It has a never-ending increase. Christ enlarges the bounds of his kingdom. And might I say to you, the kingdom of Christ is growing this very morning. As sinners are saved, as saints are sanctified, Christ adds citizens to his kingdom and he develops them. And it will continue to become more and more glorious until it is fully revealed and consummated on the last day. Christ rules by love in the hearts of his people and he has set up his kingdom upon this earth. Behind enemy lines, in the midst of a sinful world, we see the kingdom of Christ encamped and shining bright and advancing every day. It has a start date and it has no end date. The kingdom began henceforth, that's what it says, henceforth, When Christ came, but it continues forever. Therefore, this cannot be a reference exclusively to some eschatological kingdom that will be inaugurated at the second coming, but it certainly doesn't exclude the eschatological kingdom that will be inaugurated at the second coming. It's one kingdom that grows and develops throughout various stages. And in this age, the church of Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of his kingdom here on earth. When you look around today, what you see in this room is really and truly the kingdom of Christ. Oh, but there's coming a day when this kingdom shall be revealed in a far more exceeding degree of glory as all of the redeemed of all of the ages are assembled together and there won't be little manifestations of the kingdom all throughout earth. There'll be one eschatological church that will unite together, one kingdom under one king. And we will be where he is, kneeling before the throne at the right hand. And we will worship this king who was once born of a virgin but now has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. Let me give you a short statement to summarize the theology of the kingdom of Christ. It's pithy. I like it. The kingdom has come because the king has come. And the kingdom is here because the king is here. And the kingdom is coming because the king is coming again.
Well, on this December 25th, may you not only worship the babe born in a manger, but may you see the totality of Christ's person and work. He was born as a child, but he reigns as a king. And he will forevermore reign as the God-man, exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. And if you don't know this king, if you are not a citizen of his kingdom, you must see that your soul is in great danger this morning. The kingdom of Christ is advancing in this world and Jesus is conquering his enemies and it's only a matter of time before he gets to you. But this conquering king, oh, he's also the prince of peace. And he's revealed very clearly in his word how you may have peace with him how you may enter his kingdom. Mark 1 and verse 14. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, this Prince of Peace not only commands you to be at peace, he has also died to give you everything that you need to have peace. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot work your way into the kingdom. You don't get into the kingdom because you're good enough or because you deserve it. You get to the kingdom through repentance of your sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be found in Him is to be accepted in God and to be made a citizen of the kingdom. So I say to you today, forsake your works and your own failing efforts and cast yourself at the mercies of this King. Before His crown came His cross. And not only is this the King that rules over you, This is the king that died for you. And in his death, he accomplished the salvation of every sinner who would ever trust him by faith. So bow the knee before this king. Confess him as Lord. Trust in his sin-bearing, sacrificial death to save you and make you a citizen of his kingdom forever. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name, Lord, for sending your son into the world to be born of a virgin to live a sinless life on our behalf, to die for us on the cross, and to be now seated, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. Oh Lord, how we love you, how we praise you, how we worship you, and hallow your holy and blessed name. Father, I pray that you would magnify Christ as he's preached, that the gospel would be so clear, and that if there's anyone here that sees their need for Christ, that you, by the Spirit of God, would be pleased to manifest yourself to him, to reveal the Son. If there's a Christian here that perhaps they've been having a rough go of it, their spiritual life has just been struggling, oh God, may you minister to them and give them the grace to once again return to their first love and to devote their lives to the cause of Jesus Christ. May God be true and every man a liar. Thank you for allowing us to come and worship before your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.